0: We want to welcome you here this evening. As you can tell, I have a bit of a cold, so who knows how we'll make it make it through the evening. But tonight is the second Sunday of the month. Second Sunday of the month is our time to celebrate the Lord's Table. The reason I use the term "celebrate" is this is a core meaning in the word. Worship. It is a time to remember, a time to commemorate. Worship has to do with celebrating God's grace and what God has provided for us. When we look at the Lord's table, the purpose the Scripture gives for the Lord's table is to remember, to remember what the Lord did for us. Our view of the Lord's table is that it is a memorial. And when you study the Scripture, there's an important word. Called remember. We'll see that word in our passage that we are studying this evening in Revelation chapter 2. It is a word that is used again and again in the Old Testament. And there were times in the Old Testament when God would tell uh, the Jews to do something and to establish something as a memorial. Because you see in Scripture history has meaning, and God does not need to do something in every generation. He needs to do it just once, and the results go on, and He establishes some sort of historical marker. And with that historical marker, whether it is an ongoing ritual, such as the Passover meal or the Lord's table, or whether it is a cairn of twelve stones, such as the Jews laid down, at the uh, site of their crossing of the Jordan River when the tribes entered into the land. Whatever it may be, the purpose for the memorial is for generation after generation after generation to come back to that act of God in history, that we believe in a God who is the God of history. He is the God who has a plan for human history and thus the events in our lives are not merely random, chaotic events, but there is a plan and a purpose that God is working out in human history. And the apex of human history is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because everything leading up to the cross was in preparation for the cross. Galatians 4.4, Paul tells us that, Jesus Christ came in the fullness of times. And that means that God had so prepared all of the cultures in the world to prepare them for this coming of the Messiah. At the time Jesus came, there was uh, almost a universal expectation that something was going to happen. You go back and you read the records in in, uh, classical Roman literature, Greek literature at that time, there was an expectation among pagans that something was going to happen. They didn't understand what was going to happen. They didn't have the uh, knowledge of the Old Testament. But even among Jews, there was this messianic expectation and anticipation that something was going to take place. So everything in the Old Testament zeroed in on that time of the Incarnation. And since the incarnation, everything in history is an outworking of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and what God is doing now through the body of Christ, the church, and the bride of Christ. And so all of history hinges upon the one great event of Jesus Christ's redemption of man. And so the church, as the body of Christ, as his bride, is called upon to remember this event to remember what took place, to remember the grace of God, to remember the love of God that was demonstrated for us by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, so that we would have a physical, tangible demonstration of God's love. But more than that, we would also have a physical, tangible demonstration of His justice, and his righteousness, and that he uh, would resolve the problems of his justice and righteousness by having the sin penalty taken care of by Jesus Christ on the cross. And when we think about all that had to come together at that, for that moment in time to take place, it demonstrates the tremendous working of God in history from the uh, Virgin conception and birth, the decree of Caesar uh, for the taxation, all of the different details that came together, and then everything that came together at the time of the crucifixion. We realize God's tremendous control of history for the purpose of providing a perfect salvation for you and for me so that we can come now as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who have been regenerate, recognizing that our sins have been paid for, that God loved each one of us so much that he gave his unique son to die on the cross as a substitute for us. So that when we come to the Lord's table, it is an opportunity for us to stop, to focus our attention on the most important priority of our life, which is our relationship with the Lord and the foundation for that relationship. The Lord's Table is an opportunity for each of us to get go back to the very basics of our life and our salvation, to be reminded that we are who we are, and we have what we have because of the grace of God. And the two elements of the Lord's Table focus our attention on the plan of God, how he worked it out in terms of the humanity of Jesus Christ, fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies, some 100 prophecies in the Old Testament, some in uh, <clears throat> general, some more specific, all were fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He would be fully God and fully man, united in one person. And that is the testimony of the bread. The bread is unleavened because leaven represents sin. The lack of sin in the uh, the lack of leaven in the bread represents the lack of sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. The theological terminology is that He was impeccable, and because He was without sin, He was able to go to the cross, qualified to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins. And the cup represents the work that He performed on the cross. The color of the grape juice or wine is red because that is the color of blood, and there is no covenant without the shedding of blood. And it was on the cross that Jesus Christ established the new covenant, and it was on the cross that he paid the penalty for sin through his spiritual substitutionary atonement. The Lord's table is a serious time of reflection for every believer. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that they should not come to the Lord's table Uh, And treat it in a disrespectful manner They should not come to the Lord's table with known sin in their life And so he admonished them and warned them that they should examine themselves To make sure that they were ready to partake of the Lord's table So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer To give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1-9 To make sure that you're in fellowship To simply admit or acknowledge any known sin in your life And the privacy of your priesthood to God the Father. Instantly we're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're restored to fellowship, and we are prepared for worship, we are prepared to advance in our spiritual life, and we're prepared for the Lord's table. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'm going to ask Doug Daly if he would please return thanks for the bread. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we come to take the bread for what it commemorates, the chance to remember Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, making himself lower than angels, his humility in taking on true man so that he could go to the cross in our place, in our stead. We ask your blessing on the elements as we pass them tonight and for concentration and reflection on these things. In Jesus' name, amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. As our Lord observed the Passover meal with His disciples the night before He went to the cross, He took two elements within the Passover meal and invested them with new meaning. First was the unleavened bread. He took the bread and He broke it. He passed it to the disciples and he said, This is my body which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Doug Karn if he would return thanks for the cup. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and celebrate the Lord's table. As we partake of the cup, we ask that you keep our minds focused on our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will keep us remembering that he who knew no sin was made sin as a substitute for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Our Lord then took the cup. It was the third cup in the meal, called the cup of redemption, which of course foreshadowed His work on the cross. He then said, This is the new covenant of My blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of Me. Let us all stand together and we'll sing hymn number 144, When I survey the wondrous cross. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that as we examine the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit would take the things that we study and drive them home into the soul of each one of us, and that He would use it for our maturity and our spiritual growth. We pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of Your Word. In Christ's name, Amen. We'll continue our study on the first letter in the seven letters to the seven churches at the opening of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This first Short epistle is addressed to the church at Ephesus. And as we have studied, Ephesus was not the largest of the seven churches, but it was the second largest, a major commercial center, as well as a center where there was a tremendous amount of paganism. There were at least 15 different uh, temples in Ephesus to different gods and goddesses, the most famous of which was the temple to. Uh, Artemis of the Ephesians it was in this context that the Apostle Paul came in roughly 60 61 AD and began to teach the gospel he remained there for three years and during that time laid a solid foundation in that city there were several congregations that were established in that city and it was from his training school which meant at the school of Tyrannus that they sent out uh, teams of evangelists that took the gospel throughout the province of Asia Minor. They went to Colossae, they went to Laodicea, they went to Pergamum and Thyatira, and all the various towns and villages in that western part of what is now Turkey. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people who understood the gospel and put their faith alone in Christ alone and this established all of these congregations which became a major a strong point for christianity which lasted for over 400 years and provided a major source of spiritual strength for the roman empire but these churches were not perfect as we have seen there were a variety of problems within these congregations And so at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ gives his evaluation of these congregations, not for the purpose of simply exposing their weaknesses or for simply praising uh, one or two congregations at the expense of the others. What he is doing is he is using these seven churches to represent the major trends that will take place in congregations throughout the church age. And so we can take the totality of these seven churches and make a list, as I did several lessons ago, to see what the issues are. What are the character qualities of a congregation that the Lord emphasizes? And in this first short uh, evaluation, the Lord emphasizes several things for the church in Ephesus, which we have uh, looked at already. As we've noted before, each of these short uh, evaluation reports begins with a commission that addresses the congregation to the church at Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then there is a character reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, a citation coming out of that vision in the first chapter that focuses on a specific attribute of Christ that is in turn related to the thrust of the evaluation. Then there's a commendation, a praise for their spiritual advance, certain qualifications there. Uh, Two of the short epistles have no commendation. This is followed by a condemnation a warning about a certain spiritual flaw in that congregation that needs to be addressed. And this is where we are right now in this first epistle, is looking at the commendation and the condemnation. We'll come back and look at the correction later. Again, a map of these seven churches and their location on the western province of Asia Minor in what is now... Turkey. As you can see, they, they weren't on a typical uh, highway or trade route where you would normally go from one to the other. You could start at the lower left-hand corner at Ephesus, and following a, a uh, clockwise uh, rotation, you could move through each of these in order. So there is some order there, but there were, there were other congregations in this province, there were other cities and villages that were larger. So we know that these were chosen by the sovereign decision of God the, uh, God the Holy Spirit to illustrate the trends in the church age. We begin with the first verse, To the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the angel assigned to each congregation that reports on what's going on spiritually in that congregation, to the Supreme Court of Heaven in relation to the angelic conflict. Uh, this angel thus gets a report a, that gets a copy of the evaluation report from the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with the phrase, these things, which we know from uh, extant literature from the ancient world, that this is a st- uh, a prelude to an authoritative statement from a king or a sovereign or perhaps a local magistrate. It is an an introductory clause that, that stresses the authority of the pronouncement. These things says, and then we have a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of that image in the first chapter. He's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, indicating his authority over the angels. This is something we'll get into in detail in the first chapter of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is elevated over the angels and as a result of the ascension and the declaration of his sonship, as per uh, Psalm 2-7, that Jesus Christ is set in authority over the angels. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, And who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Literally, it's the seven lampstands of gold in the, in the Greek. It's a a genitive phrase there. It's an adjectival genitive. So golden lampstands is, is a, a fine translation, but it's lampstands of gold. I like that. It emphasizes that golden quality. This is the church. There's a high view of the church in the scripture, even though these, some of these seven Congregations seem less than gold In the eyes of God Because of positional sanctification They are all valued highly They are all viewed as congregations of believers There is a tremendous uh, confusion over this As we will get into next week That some of them may not have been believers They were just churches in organization But they were not made up of believers because of the apostasy that was there. And this has tremendous implications in, in how you understand the spiritual life and the role of the church. And we'll get there next week under the concept of the overcomer. But he walks in the midst of these lampstands. And this is a picture for us of the ongoing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of the church. Now, at the same time that we're talking in Revelation two and three about how the the Lord is walking, he's moving in the midst of the congregations, we know that at the that he is also pictured in the scripture as being seated at the right hand of God the Father. and there for some people, there's a contradiction here or an apparent contradiction. How do you have the Lord Jesus Christ in session? seated at the right hand of God the Father, and now he's pictured as walking around. And that is something that we will address several times, both on Sunday night in Revelation as well as our study in Hebrews. The session, the seatedness of Christ, is related to two doctrines. Number one, the completion of the work of salvation, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, At the cross. Because it is finished, he sits down. It is also related to his second coming. In Daniel chapter 7, we have the picture of Jesus Christ waiting before his prayer coming out of Psalm 2, which we'll study later, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, where he is told to sit at the right hand of God until he makes his enemies his footstool that the session is related to his coming kingdom. It pictures him in, in relation to the completed work on the cross on the one hand and waiting for the uh, time of the second coming when he will come into his kingdom. But in the meantime, and see, these are mostly Old Testament prophecies. There's no prophecy, no indication anywhere in the Old Testament that there is this parenthesis between the first advent and the second advent. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think that there was no mention in the Old Testament of this, theologians call it the intercalation, don't you just love that, of this, this intermediate period between the, the first coming and the second coming? Why do you think that's not mentioned? If the Jews knew that there was this going to be this lengthy intermediate period, then they would not have recognized they, they would not have had a real offer of the kingdom at the first advent. They had a genuine offer of the kingdom at the first advent and they rejected it and it's because of that rejection, even though the God the Father planned for it, understood it, it was part of the plan it's a genuine offer. And so there's a postponement of the offer, I mean, a postponement of the inauguration of the kingdom until the, the second coming. So in order to keep that offer of the kingdom genuine and to keep it legitimate, there's no mention in the Old Testament of any intermediate period, any church age, anything like that. And so the, the Lord Jesus Christ is only pictured in terms of the session in the Old Testament. And it's only Old Testament passages that we go to for the session. You get that from, from Hebrews. We'll deal with that extensively on, on Thursday night in the first two chapters of Hebrews. But with regard to the church, he is active. With regard to the kingdom, he is passive. See, he's accomplished salvation. He's seated. He's awaiting the kingdom. It, we're not in any form of the kingdom. Now, this is one of the great, uh, Errors coming out of so many places today is this idea called the already-not-yet view of the kingdom. And it comes out of what is Reformed theology, amillennialism, that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom at the first advent, and it just sort of gradually coming in, During the church age, until it fully comes in with his second coming. So it's already here, but it's not yet here. So the first time you hear that, you go, what's going on here? It's already here, but it's not yet here. What do you mean? Well, this is theological doublespeak. And this is now entered into... Uh, what is the the latest version of dispensationalism, which isn't dispensationalism at all, in my opinion, called progressive dispensationalism. And this is what dominates the teaching, not only at Dallas, but most of the other major seminaries that we're familiar with coming out of the 70s and the 80s. It's become the popular trend. It's really an attempt to assimilate and compromise with covenant theology and their eschatology, their, their views on prophecy. And so the term that has come to be used for this is progressive dispensationalism because you see they have the kingdom coming in progressively during the church age. So it's progressive dispensationalism. And frankly, I don't think it's uh, either progressive or dispensational because it, comp- it it is compromised so much with covenant theology that it's basically destroyed its roots. So we have to maintain a clear break. The kingdom was offered. The kingdom was offered at the first advent. It was rejected, and so it's been completely postponed. And you have a unique age or dispensation now called the church age or the dispensation of grace. And so the Lord Jesus Christ during this intercalation is working in the church through church-age believers, something unforeseen in Old Testament prophecy, and He's actively involved. And this is the emphasis here. Jesus Christ is walking in the midst of the churches. He is involved in the churches. He is preparing His bride for the future uh, responsibilities to rule and reign with Him. And from this involvement, he says, I know your works. And the Greek word there I pointed out last time is oida, indicating his complete knowledge, divine omniscience, that he is fully aware of what's going on inside each congregation. And the first thing he says in every one of these Epistles is that he knows our works. This is a summary statement. He knows the application of doctrine. Remember in James, if you've gone through James with me, in James 1 and James 2, James uses two concepts to bring about a a parallelism uh, as he's emphasizing application. In James 1, verse 20, down through the uh, end of James 1, he talks about uh, hearing. And doing. Don't be simply a hearer, but a doer. Now that's not talking about Christian service in that context. It's talking about application of the word. Don't just sit there, fill up your doctrinal notebooks with a lot of information, fill up your head with a lot of theological terminology. Doctrine is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. It is a means to an end, and the end is your relationship with God, therefore, we want to grow to spiritual maturity so that we can have a full capacity to understand and appreciate our relationship with God and to fulfill our role and responsibility as church age believers and ultimately as human beings who are created in the image and likeness of God. So when you look at James, James talks about hearing and doing, and then in the second part of that opening section, he uses another pair of words that are comparable to hearing and doing, and that is faith and works. Faith and works. Works is simply the application of doctrine. You hear it, you believe it, you do it or apply it, and you, um, and that's works. So Jesus says, I know your application. I know your application. And he begins every one of these letters that way. Now, if you've got a... Uh, if you've got a King James or New King James or New American Standard, I mean, New King, King James or New King James, I think, has this at every place. I'm not sure. It's in the majority text. There is a phrase, I know your works, for every letter. This is a textual problem. And uh, in the critical text, it's not there for everyone. But trust me, we'll go through them. Every one of these is parallel. I know your works. It is a statement of the omniscience of the judge, who is therefore fully qualified as our peer judge to evaluate us. The first thing he mentions is your labor, and it should read your labor and your, your endurance. One thing I, I like using the New King James for various reasons, but one thing I don't like about it is it still has some translation problems, and it translates the word minnow" with patience, and it should be endurance. There's a difference between minnow are Hupamone, which is the uh, noun, Hupamone, and uh, Makrothumia. And we'll get into that in just a minute. You know, those are works. There's three pairs here. You're, you're, you, first of all, the works are labor and endurance. Labor is kapas, and it means toil and sweat, and it's a reference to Christian service. Endurance has to do with. Hanging in there in the Christian life it 's staying under pressure. Then the second couplet is "You cannot bear evils and it uses the word bastazo, which means to uh, literally to carry a heavy load and it can be a physical load or it can be a, a spiritual load or, or used metaphorically and you have tested. Their claims, that is the claims of those who uh, claimed that they were apostles, who s- said they were apostles and were not, and found them liars. So the second couplet emphasizes the th- their, their application of doctrine. They, can't, uh, c- they cannot uh, tolerate those who make false claims doctrinally, and they're e- constantly evaluating those claims. And then the third The third uh, couplet, you have endurance and you persevered by again. And see, that's important. Why does he use that same word twice? Very important. You persevered or you hung in there. You hung in there because of my name. So those are the three couplets. Well, let's run through them. Some of this we've hit already and I just want to review it. And then we'll press on to verse 3. I know your works, your labor your labor, this is your toil resulting in weariness And this has to do with, with uh, Christian service This is not a means to spirituality This is what it's like to be involved in Christian service And every one of us should be involved in Christian service in some area as you mature you know, I'm not saying like a lot of churches do As soon as you walk through the door, let's put you into something uh, you got to have some some spiritual growth and understand something, but you have a spiritual gift which you receive at the instant of salvation, and as you grow and mature, that begins to manifest itself. And it may, may be an administration; it may be have to do with the gift of mercy, having to do with uh, uh, people having mercy towards people who are going through trials and tribulations. It may be a teaching gift. Whatever it is. People need to be involved in some sort of ministry in a local congregation, and this is not always easy. Notice how Paul uses this word to describe his own ministry. First Corinthians three eight. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his labor, his toil. So reward is related to this word kapas, and it's a word for for labor, and sometimes it has to do with With extremely difficult responsibilities Toil John 4.38 Jesus said, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored Others have labored and you have entered into their labor There is a part of the spiritual life that involves toil It's not always easy, it's not always fun And there's difficulty We're living in the cosmic system Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding. Notice that, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He's not talking to pastors here. He's talking, about the, he's talking to the members of the congregation in Corinth. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. There's our word ergon again, production. Knowing. Literally, it's a causal participle there, because you know that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You may feel frustrated. You may be teaching a prep school class for 20 years and wonder, what value has this been? You never know what impact you may have on the life of some child that comes through your class 10, 20, 30 years later. Second Corinthians 6, 4 and 5, Paul says, Describing his own ministry says, but in all things we commend ourselves as, as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, that's getting whipped, uh, legislative punishment, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, going without Food or water. So Paul's description of his ministry is not the kind of thing that's going to attract a whole lot of people to him if they're looking for uh, some sort of glory on the earth at this time. Second Corinthians eleven twenty seven. He says, I have been in labor and hardships through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now, why in the world would he want to do this? See, living the Christian life sometimes is very tough. It's not just a matter of your own personal walk with the Lord. This is the production that is related to uh, Christian service. It may involve any number of different things in terms of uh, being involved on a uh, deacon board in a local congregation to just being involved in a prayer ministry, being involved in media ministry, whatever it is. People should, Christians should be involved in ministry in a local congregation. This is part of our responsibilities as believer priests, where so many churches get out of line is where they make that a means of spirituality or a barometer of spirituality, and it's, it's neither. But it is an outworking of our spiritual growth and our spiritual life. First uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.3, Paul says, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, that is production of faith, and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So again and again we see the Apostle Paul praising these congregations and the members of the congregation because of their intense toil for the Lord in the local church. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you in our labor. Would be in vain. So he's talking about the the evangelistic ministry, teaching the word, is laborious. You know, as a pastor, I'm often the, you know, brunt of jokes where people say, "Well, you only work one day a week." Oh yeah, right. Uh, pastors spend a tremendous amount of time, or should spend a tremendous amount of time, studying. And it's not just studying and teaching. I mean, there's so many things that, especially when you're pastoring a, a startup church like this, there's so many other things that that enter into it. We have to think about uh, establishing, uh, you know, protocol for different things that we do. I mean, It's all new. We're we're starting over. So how do we do what we do? What do we do? We've got to get out and find a a building, a better place where we can meet that's ours so that we can uh, have a Sunday morning service and develop prep school more and and begin to uh, get a little more on our feet. And that takes time to go out. Uh, This week spent one afternoon uh, driving around, just looking at different places. And then the next day, uh, spent that afternoon going and meeting with leasing agents with uh, Doug Carn and looking at places. I mean, this just takes time, but this is what pastors do. They also uh, get involved when folks have problems, uh, and sometimes folks have problems in their in their spiritual life. And I may not be addressing a particular issue in any of the classes I'm dealing with, and yet you have a spiritual crisis meltdown over something. You need to talk to Somebody, your pastor, to get a little advice, and so pastors need to be available for that, or perhaps there is a medical or health crisis or or someone is uh, perhaps dying and on the verge of uh, being promoted to heaven, and so the pastor needs to be there. this takes time you never you can 't fit this into a schedule that uh, goes from eight to four. There's more to it than than that. And then you have to study and think and be aware of so many other things that it, at times it is laborious. But it's let me tell you, there's nothing I'd rather do. And One time I, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh and he was talking about, Boy, isn't this great, I actually get to do what I like to do and get paid for it. And I said, yeah, it's like being a pastor. You know, this is great. I can't imagine this. This is something so much fun as to spend your time every day studying the Word. And there's just isn't enough time uh, in the day to do that. There's just so much to learn. I just cannot imagine anybody thinking that they, and and you hear this from pastors every now and then, but I can't imagine any pastor ever thinking that they've arrived at a knowledge of the Word. There's just so much to study, and there's so much to to, uh, dig into as you get into the Word. I have ideas about what I want to study ten years from now. And, I, and, I, and that hardly even touches areas uh, of the Scripture that I've never gotten into. I've been working for a year on trying to develop a, a study on the life of Christ. That will take years to go through a study of the life of Christ. And I'm starting to prepare for it now, but I, I'll probably be 60 before I start teaching that. And, and I never expected to teach Hebrews right now. I had planned to, to teach another book and then I decided uh, for a number of reasons that I wouldn't teach that. I'd go back to Hebrews, and I wanted to teach Hebrews because it, it brings together some issues that are facing us in our contemporary culture related to the person, the work of Christ and canonicity and other things. And so I thought this would be an excellent book to study, but Hebrews is not an easy book to study. And I've talked to several people since I've started the study on Hebrews, and they've commented that, well, you know, I've always felt a little intimidated by Hebrews. I'm not sure I understand everything that's there, and I've tried to read it a few times and wasn't sure what it was talking about, but it seems fascinating. And the same is true for pastors. I know of pastors who have never taught Romans because it intimidates them. I know of pastors who have never even thought about teaching Hebrews because There's so much there from the Old Testament, as I pointed out the other night, there's over 88 either direct quotes or allusions to the Old Testament in Hebrews, which demands that you have a a firm grasp of of the Old Testament before you can even teach Hebrews. So all of these things come together, and it's a book that I haven't, uh, that I put off teaching for a while until I felt that I was comfortable. Uh, and prepare to teach it And as I was thinking about teaching it this time I said well let me just read through Hebrews and see what I think And I read through it And I was personally amazed at how much uh, the fruit of my own study Over the past three or four years had come together Where I said I'm ready for this I, I can handle this now But you see you can't No pastor is ready to teach everything It takes a lot of preparation, a lot of study, and it's not just something you can do that week or the next week, but there has to be uh, almost a a lifetime of studying and reading on certain issues and thinking your way through them. And I know that in in my lifetime, we've seen a tremendous advance in an understanding of certain areas of doctrine that were not that clear 30 years ago. And um, and some of these have to do with Hebrews And I think that so much has been done in the last 10 or 20 years Some good, some not so good But even when somebody comes up with the wrong answer You go, that's wrong, but you really got me thinking And now I have a better understanding of what it's saying So even if somebody comes up with the wrong uh, interpretation It can still move you forward in, in understanding there So I, I'm excited about that But this is the labor of the ministry, and you labor in many different ways. Uh, Revelation 14.13 uses the same word again. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. See, we're involved in labor in our spiritual life, spiritual service, until we go to be With the Lord. So the Spirit says that they may rest from their labors. That rest doesn't come until we're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. There's no retirement in the Christian life. There's no retirement. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to go visit a good friend of mine. Some of you have known him. We've mentioned him before. Gordon Whitelock, who founded Campanile, had a tremendous ministry. And he's 91 and a half now And he's got cancer And he's battling several other complications And I went to see him in the hospital Up in Burnett, Texas yesterday And um, So I'm not sure What's going to happen Whether he's going to come out of the hospital this time or not But boy When that man was 85 years old He could—he—he he made me run to keep up with him I mean talk about physical strength But spiritual stamina To be involved in ministry well into your 90s. And Dr. Walvard was the same way. I think he was around 91 or 92 when the Lord took him home a few years ago. And I remember when he was 88 or 89, uh, he could not come and speak at the pre-trib research uh, group in Dallas because he was on a missions trip in Southeast Asia. There's no retirement in the spiritual life. In fact, I know of many... Uh, many christian businessmen who look forward to the time when they can retire so that they can do something on the mission field or they can get involved more fully in christian ministry once they get to a point where they don't have to work uh... 50 60 hours a week we have labors there's much to do in the christian life so uh, Revelation 2.2 should be translated, I know your works, even your labor, or that is, we're defining what works are, your labor and your, translated patience in some versions, your endurance. And this is the Greek word hupomone. Hupomone, one of my favorite words. There's three words we're going to get into in the Greek here. The word for endurance, the word for overcomer, and when we get into Hebrews... We're going to deal with the word for companion or partaker with the Lord Jesus Christ. These are key words for understanding our spiritual advance. Hupomone means, it's a compound word. The hupa prefix means under, and mane is a cognate of the Greek verb meno, M-E-N-O, meaning to stay or to remain. And so it has the idea of remaining under A situation, see, patience has to do with usually people and sometimes events, and that's really expressed more by the Greek word makrothymia. Makro meaning long, thumia from thumos anger, long on anger. This isn't patience, this is endurance. Endurance is the idea of staying in tough situations, remaining in adversity by means of application of doctrine. It's not the stoic idea that I'm just going to have a stiff upper lip and be tough when I go through difficult times. It is staying in the pressure and remaining in fellowship, utilizing the problem-solving devices, so that recognizing that God and His sovereignty has brought about that test. He has designed these adversities for your life and mine to produce maturity. And if, if I'm going to let that produce its result, I need to stay in fellowship and apply the word and consistently apply the word and claim promises and utilize uh, the faith rest drill and grace orientation, doctrine orientation, personal sense of eternal destiny and personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ and sharing the happiness of God. All of these are involved and, and keep us In the adversity by means of doctrine So it's endurance And the Lord is praising, commending The Ephesian congregation for their hard work And for their endurance Those are the first, that's the first two That's the first couplet Now when it comes to endurance This is a major doctrine in the New Testament It's brought out fully The role of endurance is brought out fully In two passages Romans 5 3 through 5, as well as James chapter 1. Romans 5, 3 we read, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. That's the word athlipsis, or adversity. We glory as believers. When you hit tribulation, adversity, difficulty, it's not the time to moan and complain. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he said, Do all things without grumbling or murmuring. Excuse me, that's Philippians uh, Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling and murmuring. Now, I'll just say that's just what the Holy Spirit says. I'm not going to say anything more about that because I know I'm stepping on my toes. Uh, Not only that, but we glory in tribulation. We can look at adversity and say, this is something that I can glory in. Why? Because we understand that this is designed by God for our life for a purpose. Because we know, that's that next phrase, it is a perfect tense, I mean, excuse me, it is a participle, a causal participle, because we know that tribulation produces hupomone. See, you can't get hupomone as a character quality without something to hang in there, through, to stay under some sort of pressure, adversity. So we can glory. This is the same idea that we have in James 1. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith, that is the doctrine in your soul, produces endurance, and let endurance have its maturing result, that you may be complete and mature. So endurance is crucial. You can't get from spiritual Infancy to spiritual maturity without endurance—it's hanging in there in the midst of adversity by means of application of doctrine. Romans five four develops it in perseverance—that is, hoopamone or endurance—produces character. The word there is dokimion—that is, approval—produces approval. The verb is is a word that is used for evaluation of the believer at the judgment seat of Christ. It is to produce character that is worthy of rewards, divine good. And character, dochemion, produces hope. Hope is a confident expectation. It is a certainness, a stability, a a grounding in the soul that we have an expectation of a future with the lord jesus christ it 's recognizing that personal sense of our eternal destiny in romans five five now hope does not disappoint because the love for God or excuse me this is a, a, a uh, objective generative, uh, subjective generative love from God Has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit Who was given to us And this is a love for, uh, from God That is given to us and poured out to us At the instant of our salvation So the first couplet I know your w- production Even your hard work, labor, your toil And endurance And then we fit this into our flow chart For the Christian life That's salvation. We go through tests of. That's James 2. Excuse me, James 1, 2 through 4. Tests of doctrine. When we are obedient to the Lord and obedient to Scripture, then the Holy Spirit produces divine good in us. We have genuine life. Remember, Jesus said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but to give you life. That's eternal life at salvation. And life abundantly. That is the Christian life. And it produces evidence that the will of God is good and perfect. This then, in turn, leads to steadfast endurance, James 1, Romans 5, which in turn leads to the adult spiritual life. Those are the dynamics of walking by the Holy Spirit. And the result of that, eventually, is that we go to the judgment seat of Christ and there are works that are rewardable, divine good. Excuse me. Second couplet. I know your production, even your labor and your endurance. And then you cannot bear those who are evil. Now, that doesn't end with a period. This is all one sentence in the Greek. You cannot put up with, you can't tolerate those who are evil. The verb here is bastazo, which means to... Uh, Bear up under trying or oppressive circumstances. And the idea here is that you can't put up with the difficulties that come from evil men. It is a masculine use of the adjective indicating evil men. Now, the word there translated evil is the Greek word kakos. And kakos means evil in the sense of worthless, useless production that has no eternal value. It's not the other word that's used for evil in Greek, poneros, which has to do with intrinsic evil. This is that which has worthless or useless production. It's the same word we find in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, talking about that the judgment seat of Christ will be evaluated for our works, whether good or evil. Evil, in this sense, deals with all the production of the sin nature. That includes personal sin. Of course, that's judged on the cross, so that's not an issue for us at the judgment seat of Christ. But also human good. Remember, this sin nature produces both personal sin as well as human good. And evil describes the entire production of the sin nature. It's not just a synonym for personal sin. It also describes the entire framework of cosmic thinking, which is Satan's policy uh, towards mankind. And the cosmic system includes religion. It includes many what we would call relatively good things, as well as many things that we would classify as sinful or horrible. And so the word kakos just summarizes all of this. It is production that has no spiritual value. It may include Sin, but it can also include much that is, uh, just relatively good. I couldn't put up with those in those men who were coming in and just teaching a human good religious system. And it's connected syntactically in the Greek to the next phrase, that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And the word there for tested is the Greek word parazo, which is the same word uh, used in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I count it all join my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's parosmos, that's the noun form. And peradzo has to do, it was originally a a term used in in mining, that you would take the metal and you would refine it, you would put it to to fire, to purify it, to burn off the impurities in there. And that's the idea of a peradzo, when that's used for test, it has the idea of purification in order to reveal the character of, of something as opposed to dokimazo which is designed to test something for approval Peyrazzo focuses on the process of applying pressure or or heat fire to something to see what it's made of whether it's it's good or evil so they would test those who made various claims coming into the congregation. There were those even at the end of the first century who were claiming to be apostles. Now, to be an apostle, you had to be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first advent. You had to be commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ, and you also were uh, signified that, You had the gift of apostleship by signs and wonders. You were able to perform miracles, and so they would evaluate these men. They would evaluate them on the basis of their doctrine, and they would evaluate them on the basis of whether or not they were they were performing miracles. And they they fell short. So there's a positive emphasis here that that there's there's intense work going on in the congregation. They're applying their spiritual gifts. They're they're dealing with. Difficult circumstances and enduring and continuing to apply doctrine. And this is applied specifically in the area of of testing the doctrine of those who came to teach. And so they expose the claims of these uh, apostles. And then in verse 3 we read, and, and it's almost a repetition of what we've had already. You have... Endured, as I would prefer to translate that, sticking with uh, "hupamone," as uh, constantly using that as endurance. And you have endured, and you have bastazo. It's it's literally you have perseverance. It's a noun, and then the uh, the noun "hupamone." So you have perseverance as part of their character, and then the next phrase. You have patience is just a verb, and it's an aorist tense of the verb, uh, bastadzo, and it doesn't really have that, uh, it's translated endure, it's carrying a burden. In other words, you've hung in there. And the fact that uh, that this word is used again, they, they, in, they put up or they could not tolerate the false teachers, bastadzo. They couldn't endure them, and now they are continuing to endure, indicates that this, what they're having to deal with in reference to this verb is pressure and adversity brought to bear on the congregation from these false apostles. So they're, they are praised for their endurance and that they continue to hang in there despite the negative consequences from having, uh, having evaluated these and exposed these false apostles. And then it concludes by saying you've labored... Uh, and and th- this next phrase is in the King James: "You have labored." It's not in the the majority of manuscripts, so just delete that. It's simply, "You have endured, and you have carried on for my name's sake." See, that's their focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to. I'll come back to this again next time. They have uh, because in the next verse they're going to be condemned because they've left their first love. But here the reason given for their endurance, for their doctrinal evaluation, for all the positive is for Christ's name's sake. They understand His character. So we have to remember that there is positive spiritual growth here, but in the midst of positive spiritual growth, there has been somewhat of a a regression taking place in the congregation. But they are praised because of this And they haven't become weary And the word translated Not become weary Is the verb kapiazo It's an aorist tense Uh, They have not become weary And it is the verb form Of that noun We saw earlier kapas For labor It's just the opposite They haven't labored to the point of being exhausted They're continuing They're full of energy They haven't allowed These external trials and tests and adversity to overcome them and exhaust them spiritually. They are pressing on, but they have lost something. And that is what we'll look at next time in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have against you that you have left your first love. Now, what does that mean? We'll address that next Sunday night. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. This opportunity to uh, be challenged by the positive traits that we have seen in the Ephesian congregation. Positive traits that we would like to see in our congregation, that we would like to be known for, that we are, uh, we labor hard in terms of our ministry, whatever it may be, and it differs from one individual to another, but we are Hard workers, we endure in the midst of adversity because we understand a doctrine related to the spiritual life and the role and purpose of adversity in our lives. And we're not going to give up, but we're going to press on to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that you would take this opportunity to be sure and certain about your spiritual life. Father, we pray that you would make it clear to anyone here who is not saved that salvation is not a matter of works, it's not a matter of your own effort, it's not a matter of what you do, what church you belong to, what ritual you're involved in. Salvation is a matter of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and your response to it. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Right now, right where you sit, you can make your salvation certain. By simply believing, trusting in, relying upon the death of Christ on the cross. Trusting in him alone for your salvation. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.